0: We used to think about economics as a metaphor for how to optimize distributed computational systems. E-commerce happened, the World Wide Web happened, and everything kind of pivoted, and and it was no longer economics coming into computer science as a way to think algorithmically. Suddenly, we could see that the economy was becoming algorithmic.
1: Nowadays, computational algorithms have huge consequences. Employers use algorithms to inform hiring practices, banks use them to decide whom to give loans to, and law enforcement uses them in predictive policing. But as these algorithms grow increasingly prevalent and powerful, how can we ensure that they aren't harboring hidden biases? And beyond these ethical challenges, what are the advantages to leveraging artificial intelligence and machine learning towards making more informed economic policy decisions at the macro scale? In this episode of the Veritas Lab, Harvard computer science professor David Parks explains how we can operationalize fairness in algorithms and how computational tools may provide a guide to everything from tax policy to Twitter feeds. I'm Sanjana Narayanan, and I'm Caitlin Lee, and this
2: is the Veritas Lab, the podcast where we give you the scoop on the latest research going on at Harvard, straight from the professors themselves.
1: David Parks is the George F. Colony Professor of Computer Science and co-director of the Data Science Initiative at Harvard University. He founded and currently heads the EconCS Research Group, which focuses on topics at the intersection of computer science and economics. In particular, he applies methodologies from artificial intelligence, computer science theory, optimization, and distributed systems to better understand mechanisms and markets. Professor Parks, thank you so much for joining us early on this Wednesday morning.
0: Very excited to be here, Caitlin and Sanjana.
1: On the surface, it might seem like economics and computer science don't have much overlap. So could you give us an overview of how these two fields are related and what research questions your lab is trying to answer?
0: Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, I think there are lots of different ways to get at that. But I think one good place to start is just to look at the digital economy around us and to see um, all, the, all the ways in which that's impacting our lives. So you can think about ride-sharing platforms like Uber and Lyft, where there are, of course, algorithms and markets behind the scenes that are, in that case, matching riders with drivers and trying to coordinate that market in a way that is effective to enable people to more reliably get around. Um, Or you can look at advertising markets. These are markets for matching firms with users attention against like a algorithmic system and a pricing based system so you see markets and algorithms coming together or, or you could look at recommender systems i like to think about a recommender system for youtube or Amazon is actually a market maker. It's connecting supply and demand. You know, We're on the demand side and there are producers of content or suppliers of goods on the supply side, and the recommender system is literally making the market. Or one other example, which is you know, not quite as accessible, but is still becoming increasingly important, is um, we've been building these new crypto-economic economies as well using blockchain-style technologies. You may have heard of Bitcoin as an example, Ethereum as another example. These are are becoming very fascinating ecosystems that are supporting all kinds of uh, new types of economic transactions and are very much algorithmically mediated. So there's this big space of um, digital economy artifacts and the question is how to design them. That's one part of what we do in the economics and computer science research group. Now, there are other things that that group does. We're very fortunate to have multiple faculty members and a lot of students, a lot of postdocs. Uh, so, we also have people who are thinking about topics related to prediction markets, for example. So, these are very important today as we're now 13 days before the US election. Um, so, these are These are markets that are used to aggregate information to predict outcomes of events in the future, like uh, who will win the election. We have research into how to design and aggregate those types of systems.
2: I think that actually preempts what my next question was going to be. Since EconCS is so varied and there are so many different angles you can take, we were curious about how you got interested in this field to begin with. Right now, there's a fairly sizable econ CS research group at Harvard, but during your undergrad and PhD, did this field even exist?
0: That's a really interesting question. I did my undergraduate at Oxford University in engineering and computing science. And at the time, I was, I was always interested in economics, but I did not formally study economics. I had no idea what I was going to do with myself. I got to the end of that program, applied for jobs, got an offer to do an IT job within a big bank in London, decided I didn't want to do that, applied for fellowships, got a fellowship to come to the U.S. to do a master's degree, went to UPenn, and was fortunate enough to take a class on AI that was taught by Lyle Ungar, who was a professor at Penn, who had just got tenure in computer science, but also had an MBA and was interested in economics and markets and was looking for a PhD student. And so we started talking and... Um, I decided to stay for my PhD, and at the time, people were thinking the following. This was back in 1995, 1996, so this was pre the first internet boom. At the time, people were thinking, we're going to have distributed computing systems. We'll have one computer representing firm one, another computer representing firm two, And they need to come to a decision about how to coordinate their activities, how to run a shared supply chain, for example. And people were thinking about markets as metaphors for how to design algorithms for those systems. So it wasn't so much that there was an explicit consideration of of what it would mean to be self-interested. It was more this Adam Smith view that markets are good at coordinating activities and distributed systems. So why, why write new algorithms when we can just appeal to the invisible hand and welfare theorems from economics. And so I got into thinking about things that way. And we used to think about economics as a metaphor for how to optimized distributed computational systems. But then what happened was was e-commerce happened, the World Wide Web happened, and everything kind of pivoted, and and it was no longer economics coming into computer science as a way to think algorithmically. It became really a combination of computer science with economics, because suddenly we could see that the economy was becoming algorithmic. I guess, long story short, I got into all of this fairly accidentally. I was always somehow interested in economics and markets, but, um, you know, I had no idea that I would be, I would be working in this field and got fortunate and wrote one of the first PhD theses that really tied together economics and computer science.
2: Wow, that's such a cool origin story about how EconCS essentially became its own field. Transitioning to your more specific research interests, we wanted to talk about your focus on the issue of algorithmic fairness. Computer algorithms are widely used to make high-impact decisions, whether in informing hiring practices, determining loan values, or carrying out predictive policing. So it's crucial that we ensure that these algorithms are fair and unbiased. But there's growing evidence that that's not always the case. I'm thinking of the COMPASS software, which was developed around 5 years ago and is still used by courts around the country to assess the likelihood of a defendant committing another crime in the future. It was recently shown that COMPASS systematically predicts higher recidivism rates among black defendants than white ones. Since judges rely on tools like COMPASS to determine bail amounts and criminal sentences, this issue of hidden bias is a huge problem. Could you summarize for us the problem of algorithmic fairness? Given this example in mind, what are the key challenges to ensuring that a machine learning system is fair?
0: Yeah, thank you. That's a very important topic. And it's a topic that's that's gaining rightfully so increasing attention in computer science. It starts with the data. It's not possible to overstate the importance of possible biases that exist in the data that you use in your machine learning system. And let's suppose that we're talking about machine learning, which is one of the main places at the moment where this discussion is playing out. Um, you mentioned the Compass tool from Northpoint. They have a, a machine learning learning algorithm that is used by judges in parts of the country to understand the risk score on um, people who've been arrested under suspicion of a crime, where judges will use that risk score to decide whether to let them out of jail on bail or not. The concern is that the data that's being used reflects the crimes that are being found at the moment by the way cities are being policed, and if policing is asymmetrically distributed around the city, then it could be that crimes are found in, in some parts of the city and not found in other parts of the city. So this is, this is um, what statisticians would describe as a data-censoring problem. You've, you've missed the, let's say, drugs-related crimes that are happening in more affluent parts of the city, and you found them that are happening in less affluent parts of the city, which may also be more minority parts of cities. It starts with the data, because if you don't recognize potential censoring that's happening in the data, then your predictive model will simply predict something that reflects the way you've been collecting data and not something that reflects the actual true states of the world. But because it's starts with the data, it's an incredibly difficult problem to solve just algorithmically. So you can try to put checks and balances around your algorithms to put safeguards against things that raise concern, but there's little you can do without a stronger remedy, which is to get better data. There was a workshop that I attended at Harvard Law School two, three years ago, maybe four years now. So there were, there were legal scholars there, there were mathematicians there, there were computer scientists there. And my caricature of what happened is that the mathematicians and the computer scientists arrived to this two or three day meeting thinking they had the right mathematical definition of what it means to be fair. And it became clear by the end of the two or three days that it was much more complicated than that. The the legal scholars were, for example, speaking very strongly about fairness being something that reflects the lived life of the individual, the opportunities that he or she have had available to themselves since they were born, and therefore should not even necessarily reflect things that are measurable about that individual at this moment in time. So if you think about it that broadly, then it's clear that fairness is then a societal construct as much as it it can ever be a mathematically formalized construct, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying to do the right thing algorithmically, but it means that we need to be modest and realize that this is going to be an area that will need a lot of inputs from different types of scholars, from affected communities, from society more broadly, uh, to be able to make the right progress.
1: Yeah, this question of how to define fairness and algorithms is extremely difficult, but also urgently in need of address. I'm curious about the specifics of how you would define and implement a subjective notion like fairness computationally. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
0: There are multiple definitions. This is something that is, is being discussed quite a lot. I think the simplest place to start is also a definition that people find unsatisfactory in a number of ways. is often called demographic parity. If you um, think about now a loan setting where we're making loans, demographic parity would say that you should be making loans in proportion to the makeup of society and so if you have red-haired people and green-haired people and you have one-third red-haired people and two-third green-haired people you should be making twice as many loans to green-haired people as red-haired as as to red-haired people that's demographic parity now it's very simple easy to formalize algorithmically because there's a clear constraint there And then maybe one would optimize, let's say, either profit to the bank or number of loans made subject to a profit threshold. You could imagine different ways to set up your objective, but you would add this demographic parity constraints. Now, the problem with the demographic parity constraints, I mean, there are a number of problems, but one problem is that it might be that there are statistical differences in the ability for redhead versus orangehead individuals to repay loans. This somehow presupposes that things are symmetric in a way that means that this should obviously be the right thing to do, but reality may not look like that. And so another pushback is that if in fact, let's say again, keeping with loans, if in fact the, the default rates are different for two different groups, then what do you do? Okay, then maybe maybe you level down so you start making less loans to a group that in the sense of of default rates is more worthy of loans or you have to make more loans to the other group.
1: Okay, so to summarize what you just said, demographic parity is one means of ensuring fairness in algorithms in which you add in this extra constraint that each demographic group must be treated in proportion to their makeup of society. But just to continue with your loans example, some demographic groups might truly be less likely to repay their loans. So allocating loans in proportion to demographic makeup might not be exactly fair. Then what other examples of algorithmic fairness are there?
0: So there are other notions then that people bring to the table. One of the notion is equal opportunity. It says that condition on those who will repay their loan. What is the probability that you make a loan to those people? Imagine that you can see the future and you can see who will repay their loan. And suppose that we make loans to 30% of them. And now look at the green-haired people. And imagine that you can see the future and you can see the one or the zero. Will they repay their loans? then equal opportunity says that if you're making loans to 30% of the ones in the red-haired group, you should be making loans to 30% of the ones in the green-haired group. Conditioned on what should matter, then if you now think about hair color as not only a sensitive attribute in the context of my story, but also something that once we've conditioned on what matters to the decision being made, should no longer matter, then it seems like one could hold out equal opportunity as kind of a reasonable seeming definition of what it would mean to be fair. It's harder to operationalize, right? You can see how my demographic parity, what do I need to operationalize that? I simply need to know the background population distribution. But to operationalize equal opportunity, I actually need to have an unbiased estimate of how many non defaulters there are in the red group, and how many non defaulters there are in the green group, and they can 't actually do that without making some loans at random for a while, or being sophisticated in another way. Because if I use the data collected by my decision procedure to estimate the fraction of people who will repay, then that calculation is subject to the way that I'd be making my decisions. So you see there's a bit of a chicken and an egg there, and one can then begin to think about how to design algorithms to handle that.
1: Ah, okay. That makes sense. It's really challenging to know how to implement equal opportunity in practice, because for that, you'd need an idea of the true likelihood of each group to repay their loans. And there's lots of uncertainty about how to fairly and accurately collect that kind of information. I can see how consequential these questions get when you start to look at, for example, predictive models that account for race or gender or education level.
2: On another note, we also wanted to touch upon your research on the macro scale using CS tools to inform economic policy. In particular, I was really intrigued by a recent publication from your lab where you developed an AI system that could determine which tax policies have a better equality productivity trade-off. Could you explain this project in more detail?
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, This has been a really fun project that I've I've been involved in for Uh, around six to nine months now, actually maybe even longer than that. It's a collaboration that I've had with some researchers at Salesforce AI Research. It's also related to other things I have going on in my lab where we are interested generally in the following direction. What might we be able to do with AI-based simulations of economic behavior? Um, What we do in this work is we use reinforcement learning, which is a way to learn how to optimize based on experience and rewards that you receive as you act. What we do in this work is we use multi-agent reinforcement learning. So we simulate a little economy. It's literally only four agents, or at the moment we're working with 10 agents. And those economic agents get to harvests. In the example we build in the paper, uh, wood or stone. And with wood or stone, they get to build houses. And from houses, they get money and they care about the wealth they accumulate. Also, houses will block other agents from moving through that space. So you also get these type of strategic situations happening. Resources are replenished at some rate. Agents can trade with each, with each other. We simulate a double auction with bids and asks. And, and agents vary by their location in the world and by their skill. The skill reflects how efficiently they can collect resources and build. And the types of things we see when we use reinforcement learning in this context is we see lower-skilled agents learning to collect resources but then sell them to the higher skilled agents who are more effective in building houses. So we see these, these kind of emergent economic behaviors that seem to be reasonable. You could call it specialization. Through multi-agent reinforcement learning, you can simulate the behaviors of actors in an economic system. And the other ingredient that we bring to the table is we have an economic planner. And the role of the planner is to set the taxation policy in the world. And we model the planner also as a reinforcement learning agent. So we have a planner that learns. Its actions are to change the tax schedule. If you earn this much, then your, your marginal tax rate is this, this much, Your marginal tax rate is this. As that changes, then it changes the way the world works. And then the economic agents need to learn how to respond. So it's this kind of two-level learning by the planner inducing the need for new learning by the economic actors.
2: Okay, so you have many actors that are learning how to grow their wealth in this simulation, and a planner that is learning how to set the tax policies. How is this ML model different from traditional economic theory? Were you directly optimizing for both equality and productivity in your learned tax policies?
0: The idea behind this research is that there is beautiful mathematical economics on optimal taxation theory, but because it needs to be mathematical and formal and provable, it is somewhat limited in the richness of the environments and the settings that it can study. And typical models, until fairly recently, have considered stationary environments where every year looks like every other year. There's the same kind of distribution over workers. And what we can do through AI simulations is we can simulate richer environments. And the hope is that by doing that, we might be able to learn something new about taxation policy that can then feedback and inform the way tax economics is done. Now, you asked about the objective of equality and productivity. And the nice thing about the framework is you can give your economic planner whichever objective makes most sense. And so we tell it to optimize the trade-off between productivity and equality, where we take a fairly standard definition of equality from the economics literature and measure productivity essentially as how many houses are being built. And then what we are doing at the moment is we're working to also benchmark what we do in settings where the current taxation theory from mathematical economics should already give the answer to confirm that we can replicate the answer in those settings. And maybe just one other thing to mention, this is complementary to other work that I'm excited about at the moment, which is using deep neural networks to solve problems of auction design. Uh, where we're working to use machine learning to essentially learn auction rules. Um, And there we've been able to replicate all of the classical results from economic theory and also then to use these techniques to design auctions for settings that mathematical economics is not really yet able to formally solve.
1: Wow, that's extremely powerful, what AI simulations can do that previous models could not. And I love what you said about how the work that you do goes in both directions thinking about computational systems that are intrinsically like economic systems, and also using computer science and AI to do economics in a different way. Switching gears a bit, rampant misinformation on social media is a huge problem nowadays, especially given the upcoming election. You recently published work on identifying misinformation on Twitter. Specifically, you found that you can identify whether a rumor is false or true based on its pattern of diffusion or spread through Twitter. Can you tell us a little bit more about this study? How could the spread of some rumor indicate whether or not it's true?
0: Yeah, so that was work that was headed up by Aaron Zanto, who was a senior in Harvard College at the time. Maybe It was his senior thesis. It was a very interesting piece of research. I was also doing it jointly with postdoc near Rosenfeld, who's now on the faculty of the Technion in Israel. We got fortunate in the sense that we got access to a very unique data set from Twitter that had been made available to another study that had been done at MIT. And that data set provided, let's think about what the data was, it it provided for stories that had been looked at by a truth validation site. In this case it was Snopes.com. Snopes is one of these sites that checks the veracity of stories. And what the data was is that for stories that had been looked at by Snopes, it had the uh, kind of topology of the tweet and then retweet cascades over the Twitter network. And the question that we wanted to ask in that work was whether just by looking at that topology of the way that tweets that point to, let's say a new story on a web page spread over Twitter, whether just by looking at the topology, you can build a predictive model of truthiness as judged by Snopes, right? So we didn't take a dance for ourselves in that work on what is the right standard for for factual versus not factual.
1: Right, so you have a whole database of stories that are fact-checked by Snopes and labeled as true or untrue, and then you look at the topology of the way that the tweets that are true spread over Twitter versus tweets that are untrue. What does your predictive model find in terms of what the spread of a true rumor looks like versus a false one? And what was your methodology?
0: Technically, what we did is we used what are called graph kernels. Graph kernels are, you can just think about them as algorithmically efficient ways to build out signatures that represent the topology of, in this case, think about a tree which might be branching, you could have just a chain, or you could have something branching in a very balanced way, where every time two more people send it. Or think about just a hub and a spoke where one person writes to a bunch of people. Those are all different topologies. And you want to try to calculate features that represent the shapes of those trees. And that's what graph kernels do for you. So we, we, we calculate these, these features, like think about one feature as a step forward without a branch, another step forward without a branch, and then a branch that has degree three. Maybe that's a feature. And then you can ask how many times does that feature appear, my cascade of tweet and retweets. And then that count would become a feature that would plug into a machine learning algorithm. These, graph kernels they feed in in our case into a linear or a nonlinear model that rolls on top of those kernels the paper shows us that we can be surprisingly predictive just looking at the way information spreads the reason that we think that's interesting is that we wanted to test the hypothesis as to whereas maybe one individual who is seeing that information would not by him or herself be able to judge The truthiness of the story. This is kind of a wisdom of a crowd story. Can we see from the way the information spreads collectively whether or not the kind of the crowd has understood through its joint action the truthiness of the story? That was the that was the, the, the scientific hypothesis that we wanted to test through the paper. The paper potentially also has an engineering aspect, which is that there is a kind of an adversarial notion to fake information on the way it spreads on social networks, where the defenders are the social network platforms that are trying to build out algorithms to try to protect against the spread of disinformation. But the attackers are whoever wants to influence opinion through the way information spreads and the way it's picked up and what becomes viral, you can imagine algorithms that look at the content of the tweets or the content of the stories. And those algorithms may be more susceptible to working around by the adversary, because if the algorithm is looking for a particular type of language, then potentially the adversary would be able to work around and use just slightly different language and it would look like the stories may be more likely to be true. But the theory here would be that because the way information spreads is a social phenomenon, it would be harder for an adversary to hack. And so therefore, this could lead to methods for social platforms to to detect between false information and accurate information in a way that could be more robust.
2: Okay, so just to make sure I understood that correctly, since your model is based on the entire pattern of signal through the network, the signal is more robust and can't be disrupted by one malicious actor who wants to propagate some rumor. Now onto the big question. How are the true signals topologically different from the false ones?
0: <laughs> the problem is that because we ended up using this nonlinear machine learning method on top of our graph kernels, I'm actually not able to tell you at this point which are the particularly informative kernel features that led to the discriminative power of the algorithm. It's one of these open things that we still want to go back and try to dig into more. So that's somewhat frustrating, but I, I, I think it's, it's there and it could be done, but it's not easy because we don't get to see the coefficients that were placed on different little graph kernel features because we put a nonlinear model on top of that. Unfortunately, I'm not able to tell you what is the particular signature that leads to the algorithm predicting one way versus another. But you could, you could think about a way to do that, which is you could essentially query the function. You could feed it different topologies and try to learn what it thinks is fake and what it thinks is unfake. But we didn't do that yet.
2: It must be frustrating that this particular model doesn't allow you to interpret which specific predictors are the most significant. But it's definitely impressive that it can accurately predict true from false
1: tweets. So to close out the episode, we wanted to ask what's next for the future of economics and computer science? You mentioned using these techniques to solve large-scale economic problems, but what are the advantages of that and what are the challenges moving forward?
0: Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful question because we can come full circle to our earlier conversation. The opportunity I see is to use AI to do economics in a new way. But the tension there is that how does that actually advance our economic understanding? Because if the models we end up with that represent a taxation policy or a auction policy are really complicated to understand, then economists will struggle to gain their economic understanding about what what is happening. And maybe they're also opaque for the users of the system. So one of the things that we will need is we will need to bring uh, transparency and interpretability to the outputs of this using AI to do economics. I think that's one of the remaining pieces that will be important here.
2: Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us. Caitlin and I learned a ton from this conversation, and I definitely wish I had taken your class on economics and computation.
1: Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Veritas Lab. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Sanjana, and we'll see you next time.